0: gratified by Ray Olson's um, glowing appraisal in Booklist, uh, not least by his noting the clear economical communication of the New Criterion prize winners. It's especially gratifying in an age that has increasingly been defined by a kind of fashionable obscurity. But Daniel Brown does something more than merely communicate. He preserves experience quite often unlikely or comic or seemingly slight occurrences and ruminations that nevertheless become in his hands resonant and indelible. Now, here's Philip Larkin talking a bit about this distinction between communication and preservation, which he gave in an interview uh, in in the 50s when he was 34. He said, most people say that the purpose of poetry is communication. And that sounds as if one could be contented simply by telling somebody whatever it is that one has noticed, felt, or perceived. I feel, and I think this is true of Dan Brown's poetry, that it is a kind of permanent communication, better called preservation. Since one's deepest impulse in writing is, to my mind, not, I must tell you, everybody, about that, but, I must stop that from being forgotten, if I can. (coughs) Now, of course, the process of preservation does imply communication. Otherwise, um, nothing could be preserved. And that explains why obscurity is so often a disadvantage. And the thing about preservation, as opposed to communication, is that it's much more difficult to achieve. Now, given that that's the case, it's not surprising that poets like Philip Larkin and Dan Brown are not prolific poets. Indeed, this is Dan Brown's <laughs> first book of poems. But I would venture to say they are permanent. Dan Brown. Thank
1: you, thank you, David, Roger, thank you so much. Where did Roger him. Uh, maybe he's not here. Oh, there he is. Um, I want to thank the Orismans for hosting this occasion. I've been to every one of these eight things here. Uh, half the reason I entered the contest, obviously, was to <laughs> be standing here doing this. And I was thinking as I was coming over, it's, it's a good thing those windows don't open up there, or I would jump right out it right now, rather than face the anti-climax that the rest of my life is, uh, <laughs> is going to be. It's just, it's such a, and, and it, I do want to ask, uh, invite all of you and the Orismans' behalf to look around here, uh, phenomenal uh, artwork, all of which features somebody reading, something to do with books, and an astounding collection. I think thousands of works, actually, are secreted and spirited away here, it's, it's phenomenal. So thank you, Orismans. Thank you, New Criterion, Roger, David, um, for giving me a, uh, a platform to maybe reach the world a little bit with, which I really haven't had until... David has been a tremendous editorial friend and supporter, so my poems have been in the magazine. It's been, it meant a great deal to me, David, so thank you. And I want to thank a couple of other people in the room here that have meant a lot to me. (coughs) Ben Downing, he's hiding away somewhere, was an early friend, here he is, hey Ben, an early friend of my poems, and his encouragement meant a lot to me. Alice von Strahlen, even older friend, who is in fact the subject of the title poem of this book and has helped every poem in this book be better than it otherwise would have been much, much better. And John Foy, a a wonderful poet, a new friend of mine, who has also been uh, very uh, insightful, encouraging, and yet critical in in extremely helpful ways. John, uh, thank you so much. So having said that, I'm going to read uh, a few things from here. Um, uh, This poem is called Missing It. It's a sonnet. And uh, here we go. The thing about the old one, about the tree in the forest and nobody's around, and how it falls, maybe with a sound, maybe not, is you throw the part out about what there isn't or there is, and the part of it that haunts is still there. Still there and that the happening, the clear crashing there, still encompasses everyone condemned to missing it by being out of the immediate vicinity. Out of it the way you're out of all vicinities but one all the time, excepting when you've gone out of all vicinities to stay. See, I should have put little slips in this book, but I can find this quickly mm-hmm. enough. Uh, okay, this is another sonnet it's on a lighter note, which pretty much any note would be a lighter note. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, I, one thing that's nice is that these poems I'm reading, I chose I them for whatever reasons, but they turned out to be poems that some of the people I mentioned liked. So I know Ben liked that one, and this is one that, that both John and David like. It's called At Ease. It's another, another sonnet. It's only a theory, and only a theory is what it'll probably remain, but were I ever, to get involved with somebody a lot taller than me. Her being so would deliver the two of us from the tension that attends on the woman's being only a little taller. (laughs) No point in my attempting to make amends for so great a differential. After all, her chin is at the level of my (laughs) pate. By some technique, say, by some technique, say, straightening up or other. <laughs> um, a futile effort she'd reciprocate by slouching, wearing flats. Why even bother? What is there for a pair so disparate in something but to be at ease with it? <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, this poem is called The Birth of God. Yeah. Let it not be said that I don't tackle the big so. <laughs> <laughs> um, And uh, sometimes when I, I, I'm getting into reading poems in public now, it's kind of cool. And, and sometimes I feel like I have to explain a little bit about this, but not to this august audience. However, um, you know, I just will mention uh, you know, that Lascaux Cave, which is what this, where this kind of takes place, is thought to have, the paintings in there are thought to have religious significance. So this, is t- this poem takes place at a cave, like next door to that cave. And this cave also turns out to have a, a different kind of uh, religious uh, significance. It's called The Birth of God. It happened near Lascaux, millions of dawns ago. For dawn it was, infusing radiance and cueing avians the way it does, that saw the two of them. Odds are, are her and him, though maybe not emerging from the mouth of a cave a couple south of the one that's got all that painted fauna all but snorting on a wall. That is to say, from the mouth of a cave unconsecrated, save by the sighs and cries of the night just past. The pair has borne the bliss they share out into the bright, where silently they stand, thanking, hand in hand, before the light. Their gratitude is truly new beneath the duly erupting sun. A gratitude that so wants a place to go, it authors one. (coughs) Uh, Two more. This one uh, is a little different. This one's in free verse mostly, but well, it's called A Salmon Speaks of the Sea. Uh, this is one that my dear, dear friend Alice is partial to, so I'm happy I can be reading this when you're here, Alice. Um, and uh, this is in the voice of the salmon. And you know, the, the, it, the part of the salmon's life cycle that everybody is attuned to is the last part. When the salmon goes <coughs> upstream, having spent th- three years in the Pacific, it, it goes back to the river of its birth and leaps up to the actual place where it was born and, and expires. But this poem is about the first part of its life. You know, why, what is it like for the little salmon when it, having only been in the river, goes downstream and first enters the Pacific Ocean? What is, what is, what is that like? Um, so it's in the voice of the salmon, although I think if you, if you used to watch the nature show like I did, this guy named George Page, the wonderful narrator with that beautiful voice, I, I think his vo- the salmon has kind of picked that up a little. He too has seen too many shows about salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, A Salmon Speaks of of the Sea. You approach it with an image of it, but nothing prepares you for it. Shot with sun in its upper reaches, a bankless realm dims in descent, gradually devolving toward a blackness one fins through life, trying not to think about. Yet up from that nether night jut those peaks and ridges that provide so much of the grandeur here. Much of the interest, too, their faces being very carnivals of incident. Especially compelling are those dramas it's healthier to witness than to live. How some of them stay with me. Like that silver littles' despondent swim right down the throat of an anemone, <coughs> as though love loss had crushed it past caring. Never more finally has a clutch of red wormicles closed over its hole. And yet, the giant fans slow as sway in the water wind, the manta ray, its glide a thing of a ripple of wing, the jellyfish that opened out heart of light. In singing these sublimities, I ask the several to stand for the innumerable, such richesse The river was nice, but never like this. I have no intention of ever getting over it. Of course he does get over it. It's not a a matter of intention, but still, still. I'm going to close with a poem. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad I'm reading this one because we're surrounded by this phenomenal artwork, particularly that one. I don't know if that's a new acquisition or not. I love this painting right there. It's cheap. Mm-hmm. I don't know whose that is. I don't remember it from years past. But this is um, a very short poem. It could be construed as a Christmas poem <coughs> uh, called As Seen at the Uffizi, the Uffizi Gallery. Uh, there are many paintings in the Uffizi that have this feature that I, I write about in this little poem. An audience of shepherds looks on adoringly as Mary gently bounces the babe upon her knee. To Mary's side stands Joseph. He isn't looking on. To judge from his expression, he's wishing he were gone well up into the mountains that rim the little town to dwell amongst the shepherds till things have settled down. Thank you very much.
0: You. I, I hope you will avail yourselves uh, avail yourself of the bargain basement prices. <laughs>